With my good friend and colleague Timothy Little Tim Noonan, as he prefers to be called, uh, Tim is a uh, lecturer at the Free University of Berlin. So he's coming to us from Deutschland itself, and he's the author of a fantastic book uh, titled "Cut His Mic." Cut his mic. No German. Nope. Nobody. <laughs> good. Yeah. Let's get let's get rid of it. That's like the the Tucker Carlson. I didn't. I mic. didn't know that. I wasn't. Cool. I wasn't told anything. All right, about Tim. Uh, let's put this on the ground. <laughs> uh, but uh, Tim is uh, the author of a great book titled "Humanitarian Invasion," uh, which is what we're going to talk about today, and maybe some other things as well. So, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It's really a pleasure to be on the show, and look forward to the conversation. So, Tim, I, my my understanding, your your book is is uh, takes the the case of Afghanistan, which is a uh, very fertile ground because everybody sort of played in the proverbial sandbox at one time or another in terms of doing international development work, humanitarian uh, type interventions, um, and it's a good place to sort of look at the different models of of um, that sort of process, uh, especially in a, from a Cold War perspective. And I wonder, uh, before we get into the book um, and talk about Afghanistan specifically, if you could sort of take people through, you know, what, are, what were the competing models for this type of thing in, uh, let's say, the mid-20th century or during the Cold War? Right. You know, I think maybe a, a good place to start is Afghanistan was somewhat unique in terms of developmental competition during the Cold War compared to places like Germany, or Korea, right? When we think about the Cold War, it's very easy to think about countries and parts of the world that were literally divided into two states. And, you know, you had where I'm sitting right now, Berlin inside of the the GDR, you had, you know, different models of development facing one another across the border. Afghanistan was a bit different in that it was a neutral country. It obviously wasn't divided into a, you know, West Afghanistan and an East Afghanistan. And instead, as a neutral country during the Cold War, at least until the the Soviet invasion, Afghanistan could try to sort of win the attention of of the Soviet Union, the United States, and and other powers to pursue its own modernization policies, and to some extent to pursue its own irredentist agenda against uh, Pakistan. The major players during the Cold War, though, were the Soviet Union. It's kind of easy to forget nowadays, but the Soviet Union bordered Afghanistan directly to the north. And the Soviet Union invested very heavily in gas and oil extraction facilities in northern Afghanistan and in sort of Uzbek and Tajik areas in the north. Uh, but it also invested in state farms in eastern Afghanistan, uh, kind of bringing the, the Soviet, not quite collective farm experience, but these large state-run agricultural enterprises to the east. The United States was probably the second biggest player uh, for most of the Cold War. It was involved very heavily in irrigation projects in southern Afghanistan in places like uh, Kandahar and uh, Helmand provinces, which we may remember from the days of the surge. And as I try to show in the book, there were other kind of third or kind of bit player actors who were involved in Afghanistan in smaller ways. Most notably in the book, the West Germans were very involved in agricultural and forestry projects in eastern Afghanistan. But, you know, I think there's really uh, room for, for historians and folks interested in to this to look at Yugoslav projects, uh, Czechoslovak projects, even the Chinese had development projects. So it was kind of a uh, 
you know, a motley crew of, of uh, everybody was there and, and uh, it, was a, it was a convenient laboratory to test out different models of agricultural development. So one of the major claims of your book is, I think, about the, the artificiality or not artificiality of Afghanistan as a nation state. But before we get into that, could you actually give people a broad sweep of the history of, of, the, of the area that became Afghanistan? Because people have a sense of colonialism, you know, what happened in the Western Hemisphere. People might be less familiar with, you know, the territory of Afghanistan. So maybe taking us back, it's the year 1000. Go. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So I, I, that I think, is way um, back. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go deep, baby. <laughs> so I, I, you know, we can go uh, further back to the days of uh, Alexander the Great and these, uh, you know, these spectacular uh, kind of Greek colonies in um, in northeastern Afghanistan. But I, I, for me, I think one of the most helpful ways of thinking through like the problems I, I get at in the book is to point out that the territories that now comprise Afghanistan had been one of these kind of you know dynastic sort of raider empires in uh, in central asia and really until the early 19th century the territories of this kind of proto-afghan state encompassed very wealthy and productive parts of south asia including punjab which is essentially the core of pakistan today as well as kashmir and it was only through the course of the formation of sikh empires in the early 19th century that these afghan polities or kind of proto-afghan polities lost these most productive territories and and essentially these these Afghan states which were you know unable to compete in geopolitical terms with Sikh empires in South Asia got kind of driven back to these these more and more peripheral areas that uh, today comprise uh, the heart of the Afghan state and so you know fast forward a couple hundred years and you have the situation that I try to lay out in the book namely that the territories that comprise Afghanistan are these economically marginal areas that you know might have been good if you were running a kind of early modern empire based on raiding richer parts of, of Asia with you know horses and, and people who would just ransack the local population. But this model doesn't work very well in a world of harder borders, and especially in the world in which uh, after 1947, the state of Pakistan inherits these very productive riparian lowlands of the Punjab, as well as to you know not Kashmir itself, but you know and essentially inherits these these wealthier territories, and you thus have this situation in which the state that becomes Afghanistan can't really generate enough revenue from taxing the, the lands inside of its own borders, and it doesn't have the state capacity to, to tax those areas effectively enough. And so, in effect, it has to turn to alternative sources of revenue other than you know, taxing people domestically. Could you maybe give just a brief background of the of the formation of the uh, the state of Afghanistan, how it came to be, and particular, who are the major political players of which listeners should be aware? Uh, listeners, you know, know Afghanistan and, and know Karzai and the Taliban, but maybe you could take us back to that moment of of state building because I think it's so important to understand how. Um, I don't know if decolonization is the right term, probably not, but sort of the, the formation of these new nation states in the 20th century, how it proceeded and what was unique about what's going on in Afghanistan. So the formation of the state and, and basically the major players therein. Yeah, so I, I think probably most historians of Afghanistan would say that one of the most important figures was this emir or ruler of Afghanistan, Abdurrahman Khan, in the late 19th century. He had become the ruler of Afghanistan after the Second Anglo-Afghan War and proceeded to initiate a campaign of sort of brutal modernization, attempting to, to convert non-Islamic populations in Afghanistan to, to Islam, 
and essentially terrorized a lot of the the Afghan countryside. Abdurrahman Khan, and is he based in Kabul? Yeah, he was in he was in Kabul uh, during okay. during his rule. And this this one model of Afghan modernization is attempting to using the state as a centralizing force, inflicting a lot of violence on the population. This one model from Abdurrahman Khan in the late 19th century provides one model. If we fast forward a couple of, of decades later, some of the key figures that readers may want to have on their radar would include the first ruler of independent Afghanistan. Afghanistan under Abdurrahman Khan had been a kind of quasi-protectorate of the British Empire. It wasn't allowed to have independent foreign relations with the rest of the world. And after the Afghans fought a very brief war with the British in 1919, it became formally independent. And as Why you know, were the British Dan, so willing to give uh, Afghanistan up as opposed to other areas, you know, of what became the mandate system? What, why are there, you know, because I want to talk a little bit about the quote-unquote graveyard of empires trope. Um, so why did the British give it up relatively easily in 1919 after World War One and the dissolution of all these, you know, uh, empires throughout the world? I think that I think the comparison with the mandates is a good one. I, I think for one, they weren't getting necessarily resources out of it. It wasn't along the same supply lines as, say, you know, Egypt or Iraq were. Uh, but I think more fundamentally, Danny, they were able to police the area for their security needs without taking on the burdens of attempting to govern the place or supply subsidies to Afghanistan. That war in 1919 is notable for involving, you know, an air force and aerial combat and the use of planes against Afghan forces for the first time in a way that hadn't been the case in, in the first or second Anglo-Afghan wars. And if I'm not mistaken, the British kind of delegation in Kabul after 1919 was the largest such British diplomatic delegation uh, anywhere in the world. So, you know, we might see this not uh, so much in terms of the British just giving the game away, but rather, you know, to some extent, as with the mandate system and, and places like Iraq, obviously, like in the 20s and 30s with aerial bombardment, sort of things that we would recognize almost as predecessors to drones today. Yeah, I think they actually used proto-drones in Iraq. I think, yeah, um, yeah there's Kate Hall, um, who's in England now, actually has done some work on proto-drones in Iraq uh, in the 20s and the 30s. But sorry to interrupt. So, But I, I guess I just want to make that point that you see these sure. areas really as laboratories of empire in a real way, just like Latin America was for the United States. These areas of, you know, Southwest Asia, Central Asia, um, the Middle East become uh, spaces where these, you know, disintegrating empires are able to test out new technologies that, you know, still govern a lot of the world a hundred years later. Yeah, 100%. It's it's definitely not a case of the British just uh, uh, packing up shop so much as this is, uh, you know, you could say a cheaper way for them to maintain security of their more precious possessions, namely British India, in this context. But the uh, what happens in the next 10 years is, is, I think, really crucial for understanding like longer term patterns and structures in Afghan history, after this so-called Third Anglo-Afghan War in 1919, Afghanistan is eventually ruled by another young ruler, Amanullah, who attempts to introduce uh, certain patterns of reform to, to Afghanistan, including the partial unveiling of women, having higher education. There's a conscious effort to model Afghanistan off of countries like Iran or uh, Turkey at this time and kind of push Afghanistan in the direction of more Europeanization. However, due to his attempts to tax more of the population and, and kind of reach the Afghan state into the countryside and extract resources from people, this triggers tribal revolts, and he is overthrown um, in a series of uprisings in 1929. And so here, in a way, we have this fundamental dilemma that will plague Afghan rulers for decades to come. Namely, on the one hand, you want to go for a very minimalistic state and sort of not do anything beyond the borders of Kabul and just sort of deal with it. 
or do you want to attempt to affect larger reforms onto the country and sort of impose a, a vision of a, of a of a nation of modernity? But this will require resources to to do so, and in doing so, you may risk uprisings from populations who don't agree with your visions for reform or resent the fact that you're you know recruiting them into your army or saying that they should pay taxes and so on. So yeah, this is sort of the the basic outline. We can talk more about how this plays out in the Cold War context. Yeah, I just before we get to that, could you give a little sense of so you know the famous Eugen Weber book that you know people don't feel like they're Frenchmen until World War One, right? So is is maybe you could talk a little bit about Afghan national identity, uh, what it's organized around, and how Islam does or doesn't play into that identity. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult question, and and so the question of Afghan nationalism and attempts to to promote a sense of Afghan nationalism have been very fraught. I think that one place that we might start is by observing that Afghanistan is a is a multinational country. We don't really know how many people live in Afghanistan or who they are exactly, because coming back to this question of state capacity, there's never been a reliable census conducted in Afghanistan. So it's it's somewhat difficult to say. But I think what we can say for certain is that some of the major nationalities include Pashtuns in the in the south and east of the country, Tajiks in sort of the center and uh, northeast, Uzbeks in the north and northwest, and a Hazara, a Shia minority inhabiting the central part of the country. Where I think this gets complicated, though, is, you know, not only do you have different groups which may speak different languages, but you, in some regards, don't necessarily have building blocks for kind of a strong sense uh, of sort of general Afghan nationalism. If we start with the issue of Pashtuns, they comprise probably a plurality of the population, maybe 35 or 40 or 45 percent of the population in Afghanistan. But probably four to five times as many Pashtuns lived in British India and later Pakistan than in Afghanistan itself. So, you know, this would be a little bit like uh, England claiming to be a Irish state or something. It would be, uh, you know, not maybe totally incorrect, but but uh, kind of odd. And likewise, attempts to sort of promote a sense of Afghan nationalism centered around the Pashtun language or Pashtun literature or even Sunni Islam are complicated and, and fraught. If we go back to that guy, Abdurrahman Khan, uh, you know, he is reviled among uh, the Hazara minority for trying to impose a very distinctly Sunni vision of Islam on the country and forcibly convert and kill members of, of, the, of the minority there. So I think to zoom out, what we can say is that, you know, oftentimes Afghan nationalism has been expressed in terms of fighting against you know, a foreigner, a foreign invader, be it the British or later the Soviets. And it's very easy to sort of unify people around a vision of Afghanistan defending its national independence, fighting for some vision of sovereignty. But, you know, as I think we saw after 2001, and I think as we are likely to see now after 2021, kind of imposing a positive vision is rather different than kind of defending against a foreign invader. A lot of the the history that we're talking about here, you know, in terms of the British involvement of Afghanistan occurs, especially in the 19th century, under the kind of aegis of the so-called great game, the competition with the Russian Empire. Afghanistan is sort of a negative space in a sense. It's a frontier between these two empires. And, and the great game wears itself out or it comes to an end sort of at the beginning of the 20th century. But there are, I know there are historians who posit kind of a brief revival in the interwar period, which coincides with Amanullah Khan's reign, uh, or at least uh, most of it. And this is a period where you have sort of Soviet 
interests on one hand, on the one hand, and British interests on the other hand, kind of competing with one another in Afghanistan. And I know Amanullah Khan played them off of each other to some degree. He built his military to some extent with with a lot of Soviet aid. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of this revival of the Great Game? And, and this is if we're going to start a history of kind of international development in the modern period in Afghanistan. Is this is this where you would put it? I think this is definitely one place to start. So if we just kind of pick up in whether 1919 or 1929 in this in this Amanullah period, you know, like Danny had been mentioning earlier, you know, subsidies go away and sort of they're replaced with uh, drones and, and suspiciously large embassy buildings. This is not a great development for the Afghans, but it also means that since they're not getting a subsidy from the British Empire to like run their internal affairs anymore, they have to find other nations to rely on for things like military modernization, for running a modern educational system, for like paving the streets, for like somebody to turn on the lights, you know, in in Kabul and so on. And Derek, you're completely right to to point out how the interwar period is is sort of an interesting, um, in, in some regards, kind of preview of what is to come in the Cold War, because Afghanistan during this period looks to Turkey, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Turkish military advisors come to Afghanistan. Many British Muslims actually come from British India, where there had been very severe suppressions of uh, kind of anti-colonial riots, uh, especially among British Muslims. But absolutely, countries like uh, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy are seen as uh, key potential suppliers of uh, military modernization in particular. Germany sends military advisors around the world during this time. But it's not, I think importantly, in getting back to Danny's question about the, uh, the nationalism piece, it's not just uh, technical aid, but during this period, Afghan rulers like Amanullah and especially the so-called Musahaban regime that replaces him, which is like a different family of rulers who will rule the country from the early 1930s until 1978, they're very interested in coming up with some kind of new Afghan uh, nationalism. And while I think we need more research on this, I think part of the solution that they hit on is to look to the sort of successful national myths of the day, of the day which are to say Aryanism, you know, in the form of Nazi Germany, Iran and Afghanistan are kind of Aryan, they're able to say to themselves. And so I think there's a lot of interest during this in this period to looking towards these sort of fascist or you know, authoritarian models of, of nation building. And it's during this time in the 1930s that we see a lot of efforts by the Afghan state to start to say, hey, look at how Pashtuns are this ancient uh, people. Uh, let's try to develop a stronger form of Pashtun nationalism as the as the basis for our state. And we can start to push this in schools. Intellectuals are, you know, given small subsidies to write poetry or promote Pashto literature and so on. So there's definitely a flirtation in this period with, with these models of nationalism alongside military modernization. But the, the British and the Soviets, you know, still remain kind of the most impressive uh, powers in the region uh, during this period. And um, somewhat similarly to what happens in Iran uh, next door, basically around 1939, 1940, the British and the uh, Soviets tell the Afghans, uh, look, you need to kind of lock up or, or not have any more intercourse with, you know, German or Italian uh, diplomats here. You guys are going to remain neutral and, and kind of not cause us any trouble. So so Afghanistan is kind of removed from the, if you will, geopolitical calculus of the, of the Second World War in that way, again, due to pressure from the, the dominant powers in the region, namely the British and the uh, Soviets. Could you maybe talk a little bit about Islam and quote-unquote political Islam and its role in um, Afghanistan's pre-45 development, and then we'll get into the Cold War? Because I just want to give people a sense of what is happening in terms of like quote-unquote political Islam in the 20th century and how Afghanistan fits into that much, much broader picture. Sure. 
So uh, it definitely plays an important role. I think I think it's important to emphasize uh, differences as much as continuities uh, in the 20th century. Afghanistan, I, I think, had a special role in visions of pan-Islamism during the 19th and 20th century because it was one of the few and really only three, you know, countries in the world uh, to to not be directly colonized by a foreign power. You know, if you were a um, you know Muslim in the Punjab or in Algeria or in uh, Chad or something like that, you know, and you're looking at the world in say the 1890s or certainly the 1920s. Afghanistan, alongside places like the Ottoman Empire or uh, Iran, which is obviously a, a Shia-majority country, was really one of the only few countries in the world to, to not be uh, colonized, to not be you know, submitted or subordinated in one way or another to European foreign powers. And particularly in the 1920s under Amanullah, even though we tend to associate him with kind of Europeanization, Amanullah is also very interested in promoting Afghanistan as a kind of state for Muslims um, in a certain way. Uh, historians like uh, Niall Green at UCLA have written about this in a really nice way. You know, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and against the background of, of secularization and the, and the elimination of the caliphate, Afghanistan becomes a kind of uh, place where a lot of Muslim intellectuals can place their hopes in spite of it being, you know, geographically rather marginal and, and very uh, poor, economically speaking. For a time, Amanullah shows some interest in, in sort of recovering the lands to the north of uh, the Amudarya River, the country's border with the Soviet Union. Uh, he's interested in, in recovering these lands like Bukhara and Samarkand. Eventually, he, he reaches agreement with the Soviet Union to, to agree to that northern border. But yeah, during the 1920s, Amanullah promoted Afghanistan to a certain extent as a kind of home for uh, visions of Islamic statehood, what it would mean for Muslims to have an independent uh, post-colonial state on the world stage, and a kind of a different model to the aggressive secularization that was taking place in Ataturk's uh, Turkey as well. So there are similarities in some ways between what's going on under Amanullah and folks like Reza Shah in Iran and Ataturk um, in Turkey, but um, in some ways due to the influence of these British Muslims coming to Afghanistan, just due to the different dynamics, uh, Afghanistan does in some ways position itself in the 1920s as a potential homeland, if you will, or a kind of lighthouse, if you will, for aspirations for, for Muslims to, to, you know, be treated equally and to succeed in the you know, boundaries of post-colonial statehood. Tim, you basically said that um, Afghanistan is taken out of the geopolitical game during World War II. Something tells me that it becomes part of the geopolitical game in the late 1940s and early 1950s. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the import of Afghanistan in the specific context of the Cold War and why you think it's most important to examine uh, the history of post-World War II Afghanistan from a Cold War perspective, um, in particular as this place where all these other powers come to really try new models of what would become the Third World and eventually the Global South, uh, new models of development for this, this these areas of the world. Sure, uh, absolutely. So if we come to the late 1940s and 1950s, a couple of really important things have changed in international politics from this world of, you know, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy on the one hand versus, you know, British Empire, Soviet Union on the other hand. One is that obviously British India doesn't exist anymore. Partition has taken place. And with that, uh, this means that there's a new state, Pakistan, immediately to Afghanistan's east. This also means, in effect, that this border that had once divided British India from Afghanistan, the so-called Durand Line, 
um, effectively becomes an international boundary uh, rather than just this kind of quasi weird colonial boundary. This is, of course, taking place at the same time as as uh, as the formation of the state of Israel, other attempts at partition uh, elsewhere. From the Afghan perspective, this formation of Pakistan means that these sort of Pashtun majority lands, the, these Pashtun lands, and remember, the Afghan state had been you know, promoting this, this vision of Pashtun nationalism since the 1930s, at the very least, are now kind of divided through this through this new boundary. And Afghanistan is, in fact, the only member state of the United Nations to vote against the admission of Pakistan uh, into the organization for this reason. So you have this kind of, you know, Afghanistan-Pakistan tension, but that's obviously not enough to get us to this, you know, international Cold War uh, dynamic that you allude to. What I think is important in this regard is that the United States, having become the, you know, the world's dominant superpower after the Second World War, begins to try to form regional alliances to contain the Soviet Union. Uh, we see this through, you know, CETO in Southeast Asia, but more pertinently for the purposes of this conversation, the United States in, I think, 1954, 55, uh, forms the uh, so-called Baghdad Pact, uh, also known as uh, CENTO. And this is essentially an anti-communist pact alongside NATO, of course, the, the best known example. This is an anti-communist pact in the Middle East that includes Turkey, Iraq, uh, which is then a monarchy, Iran, and Pakistan. Notably, though, not Afghanistan. Under the pact, collective security arrangements have been instituted. Joint military planning has been advanced and area economic projects have been promoted. The Afghans were interested in getting on board in this, uh, saying, well, hey, we want sort of free money and free weapons. Uh, you know, we are always in search of, of you know, new sources. The ruling family, the yes. ruling family, which is still a dominating thing, wants, wants to get part of this money tap, which they see being open to the rest of the world, essentially. Basically, yeah, this is the same ruling family that had come into power after the fall of Amanullah. Uh, and again, these guys are going to be in power in one form or another, from the 1930s until 1978. Um, this includes the very old Afghan king who, who died a couple of years ago, Zahir Shah. He is just a little uh, baby at this point and will eventually become kind of, well, he's not a, he's a, he's a teenager, I guess, at this point. Give him credit for that. Um, but anyway, the, the Afghans uh, you know, want to get in on this, on this game, but the Americans under John Foster Dulles say, well, uh, no, you, know, you guys need to resolve your differences with Pakistan and, and we're... We're tired of hearing about all of this sort of Pashtun, Durand line, you know, crazy stuff that we, we don't uh, understand. Uh, you, you guys should go away. Uh, this is, you know, very offensive to Afghan diplomats who have come all the way to Washington to negotiate this stuff from Kabul. Um, and it's partly in this context that around 1955 and 56, Afghanistan turns towards the Soviet Union for the training of its officer corps and for arms delivery. And, you know, it's important to emphasize that Afghanistan was not like the number one issue for American diplomats at, at this period, far from it. But it's through this kind of optic of the Cold War and this idea that Afghanistan is somehow falling into the lap of the Soviet Union at the same time that Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, is reaching out to countries like Egypt and India uh, that, you know, Americans, including Dulles, begin to panic. Uh, you know, Time magazine, I think, features the, one of the leaders of Afghanistan as the so-called Red Prince for, for turning to, uh, to the Soviet Union at this period. And it's against the background of this kind of uh, freak out about uh, uh, alleged Soviet influence in Afghanistan that the United States begins to think more seriously about development efforts in the country. So one thing that I have to ask, so to me, one of the most interesting questions that we ask as historians of foreign policy, what is the co causal force driving American action? So in this case, it seems like you're saying it's essentially 
a, a domestic anxiety over international communism spreading throughout the world. And so there's this imagination that the world is going to go communist. So you need to like affect the emergent third world through anti-communist efforts and particularly developmentalist efforts. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think some of the driving factors here, Danny, would be, yeah, on the one hand, essentially this anxiety that the entire world is going to go communist. And then um, beyond that, you know, a common trope in the 1950s is like a uh, a real failure to distinguish between, you know, in scare quotes, international communism and, uh, you know, sort of normal third world nationalism, let's say. Probably the textbook example of this are, are misdiagnoses of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the leader of Egypt in this period, as, as being a would-be, uh, you know, communist stooge, even as he's, you know, one of the probably greatest killers of the Egyptian Communist Party in the in the country's history. Um, so but great. certainly in the optics of the 1930s, this this idea that, you know, I, I think there's just a general lack of sophistication about, okay, why do they care about this Durand line Pashtun issue? Uh, oh, this must mean that they are, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, dirty uh, communists. Um, and, and yeah, this this anxiety, I think, really, really inf- informs that as well. Does the State Department even have people that speak Pashto? I, I would I would be maybe two, uh, if that many at this time in the 50s. Do you have any idea that, I mean, that's like kind of a random factual question, but I'm just curious if you came across any of that in, in your research. I, I, I don't think that that was uh, a resource that they necessarily had, but it's uh, it's worth noting, and, and this is, um, feel free to rescue me for myself here, but this is an issue that I think is important <laughs> to note, is that in spite of these efforts by like the Afghan state to promote Pashtun nationalism, you know, many historians have pointed out how this doesn't necessarily leave that much of an imprint on the state itself. And actually, a lot of this ruling dynasty, even as they're talking about, like, we want to rescue Pashtuns from Pakistani oppression or whatever, they are a court that largely speaks in the Persian language, uh, if not the French language at times. And in fact, one of the major themes and tensions that we can see if expressed in a different form today is you have these regimes in modern Afghanistan's history based in Kabul that are primarily Persian speaking or Persianate, as scholars would call that are about kind of educated bureaucracies trying to rule over or trying to apply violence to many times a largely Pashto-speaking rural population. But to get back to your uh, question and avoid my kind of detour, the United States does have experts who speak Persian during this period, folks like uh, Donald Wilbur, a graduate of Princeton University, who had been a specialist on, I think, uh, medieval Iranian uh, archaeology. Like Derek! That's like Derek! (laughs) Uh, Derek pursued (laughs) studies in that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Don, Don, I, I, Derek, I, I, you could have been there. Not, not quite at that level, but sure, <laughs> let's go with that. Yeah, but yeah, there, there, are, there are folks like uh, Donald Wilbur, who's a uh, who's uh, later involved in uh, Operation Ajax against uh, Mohammed Mossadegh, uh, travels the country. The archaeologist uh, Louis Dupree is is involved uh, in the country. Uh, so yeah, the United States definitely has folks from you know OSS operations who are who are competent in Persian, which I think is. Is probably actually more decisive for interacting with this particular regime Pashto, uh, at yeah. this point uh, than, than Pashto. But but broadly, Danny, you, you raise a, a right question, which is to say that really a lot of American business and diplomatic business vis-a-vis Afghanistan had just been historically conducted out of the embassy in Tehran in in uh, Iran. I don't, and if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't until the 1930s that uh, the United States even had an embassy in Afghanistan, and at some point in the 1970s, ironically. Uh, they were considering closing the embassy in Kabul because it was seen as kind of uh, a white elephant or mm, kind of pointless, uh, basically. So, 
you know, and this perhaps connects to your 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 thesis about the Cold War that um, these countries aren't necessarily important in and of themselves, or because we have incredibly deep interests there, but when they're refracted through a particular you know reading of international politics, they can assume a uh, outsized importance. you could um, talk a little bit more about the Pashtunistan or Pashtunism movement and, and the dynamics of it as uh, both an elite phenomenon, but then also what did the actual Pashtun people, you know, what was their concern here? Was this a, a, an issue for, you know, just the average Pashtun in Afghanistan and sort of, you know, worrying about the Pashtun people in Pakistan, or, you know, what were the the sort of ways that this this sense of nationalism played out? Yeah, this, this is a really interesting question that I try to, to hit on in the book. So just to start us off with, I, you know, again, the basic issue here is that after Pakistan had been formed in 1947, there had been hopes that the Pashtun majority lands of kind of Western Pakistan and Southwestern Pakistan would be allowed to potentially form their own state. As kind of a, a Pashtun nation state, but uh, they weren't uh, necessarily given that opportunity. Um, and the Afghan state then kind of picks up this idea, particularly in the 1950s, as its kind of foreign policy trademark. One of the members of this uh, dynasty in Afghanistan, Muhammad Dawood Khan in particular, uh, really takes up this banner of, of Pashtunistan and the Afghan state begins producing all kinds of pamphlets saying that, look, uh, Pashtunistan really actually exists as a country on the map, and uh, they renamed the largest square in central Kabul to Pashtunistan Square, and and this is really one of the centerpieces of their foreign policy. However, and here I think there's there's really room for a lot more research, so I, I say this with a bit of uh, uh, caution. Um, I think that most recent research would tend to emphasize Pashtunistan and this idea of Pashtun nationalism as a really elite-driven project and a way to mask for a lack of domestic legitimacy. Let's not forget this uh, ruling family in Afghanistan. They were never elected in an election. Uh, nobody ever voted for them. You know, they, due to the fact that they're not attempting to aggressively modernize the country, they don't really care if you pay taxes. They don't really care if you serve in the army because they're not in the business of collecting taxes or raising a standing army. So it's kind of a standoffish relationship. And you could say, not as a as a denouncement of them, but simply as an analytical description that they are kind of uh, illegitimate. Nobody ever voted for them, and, and they don't really have a, a large social base, you could say, necessarily. And so I think this, this device of Pashtunistan and this attempt to rally Pashtun nationalism is, in effect, a way for these regimes in Afghanistan to attempt to find some sorts of legitimacy uh, for themselves, uh, to try to rally, as they see, kind of a, a, an organic base of support around themselves, to perhaps distract from the fact that they're often heavily dependent on foreign patrons, on foreign resources, and that they themselves may lack kind of uh, good Pashto credentials um, in terms of being able to trace their lineage back through generations, in terms of speaking the Pashto language fluently, in terms of, of truly embodying and um, implementing Pashtun Wali, this kind of tribal code, into the organs of state itself. A lot of these ruling families, and more recently, you know, regimes under Ashraf Ghani or Hamid Karzai didn't really have these kind of really good Pashto credentials, but they still made efforts to try to present the Afghan state as a defender of Pashtun interests. In terms of reception, I don't think it was very successful, or I don't think it acquired a lot of resonance 
outside of Kabul, although here I think we may need more research. This is largely just because the Afghan state doesn't have money. It doesn't have resources to sort of do things. If anything, the the lands and places around uh, Peshawar uh, are, are, are much wealthier. People have more economic opportunities there than they would being part of an Afghan state. They don't necessarily want to have anything to do with uh, this state run out of Kabul. But nonetheless, the Afghan state throughout a lot of the Cold War, including under the communist regime, will present itself as a champion and defender of, of Pashtun interests. So let's go back very uh, quickly to the 50s and the 60s. So this is, of course, the era of modernization theory, mm-hmm. which is this idea um, essentially created at MIT by people like Walt Rostow and Max Millikan, uh, which is that there are stages of development. You know, the closer one is to the United States, the higher stage of development one is at. And that the purpose of the U.S. state, particularly in the in the third world, is to do large scale modernization projects, build dams, build transportation networks, build communication networks, build film facilities, uh, things along those lines, things in the 1950s and the 1960s. So could you maybe take us through, uh, you know, the 50s to the 70s? What's going on in Afghanistan during, you know, the first half of the Cold War and particularly in terms of developmentalism, um, both with the. U.S., the Soviet Union, and other uh, countries that were maybe involved. Sure. Yeah. As you say, Afghanistan is is like a really good theater to see uh, how different models of development kind of translated into things in the real world beyond uh, the campus of MIT. Yeah. So in, in terms of the United States, you know, I think that one of these ideas behind modernization theory was that, you know, states should uh, concentrate on kind of the low hanging fruit of, say, agricultural development of maybe light industry and, and like textiles if you're if you're a totally underdeveloped country. And to that end, the United States in the late 1950s uh, takes over a pre-existing engineering project that had been run privately, actually, by a company, Morrison Knudsen, in uh, southern Afghanistan. And a it, U.S. company. Yeah, uh, yeah. Morrison Knudsen yeah. was like a was like a really big uh, U.S. engineering firm that still exists today, if I'm not mistaken. I think they may have even built the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So private U.S. interests extracting things from Afghanistan is a story that goes back decades. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this is important to emphasize for readers, especially vis-a-vis the earlier point about kind of the, the predecessors to drone warfare is, you know, Bechtel. And They're listening. They're listening, Tim. <laughs> They're not reading. They're listening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so you know, Bechtel and Halliburton have these kinds of predecessors, if you will. But in this case, the sort of private corporate project, if you will, runs into a lot of problems. The Afghans are not uh, terribly happy with how this, this private company had been running an irrigation project in southern Afghanistan. And the idea was like, oh, we can build more canals, we can create model settlements, and this will be a great place for us to uh, resettle uh, people from other parts of the country. Afghanistan's irrigation projects had many difficulties in the early years. The land flooded, salts rose up through the earth, and the early settlers were herdsmen with not much idea how to farm. And this again fits into the piece about Afghan nationalism and state building. The Afghan government is interested in kind of making nomadic populations in other parts of the country uh, more legible and, and trying to settle them down in these settlements uh, in southern Afghanistan. And the United States becomes involved in this directly as a state actor in the late uh, 1950s. USAID or its predecessors take over these projects of irrigation and they try to build things like model villages. Uh, they try to encourage Afghans to grow cotton or, or local agricultural uh, goods and become involved in these irrigation projects. 
However, they start to run into these geopolitical conundrums that the United States has itself uh, constructed in the region. Due to the fact that the Afghan government is so involved in this Pashtunistan politics, Pakistan starts blockading Afghanistan uh, at times, leading to you know huge backups of agricultural goods from this part of Afghanistan and just things rotting at the border. Furthermore, over time, these ideas of creating model settlements, which are often directly modeled on the experience of U.S. irrigation in the American West, break down in terms of uh, soil quality. Uh, there's a lot of problems of soil becoming too salty due to the kinds of fertilizers that are being used. Um, and eventually, due to shifts in the world market, they find that Afghan farmers stop growing you know, pomegranates or uh, uh, you know, apricots or something and, and start turning to opium. Um, instead, due to shifts in the international drug market and these blockades that it... And this is in the 60s? This is like 60s, uh, late 70s. I'm kind of covering a lot here. But yeah, this is like 60s, oh, to, 60s late 70s. to late 70s. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that there's a shift to opium production due to shifts in international markets. Yeah, shifts in international markets, uh, decline in soil quality that, that makes it uh, uh, difficult to grow certain kinds of crops and easier to grow uh, opium. Uh, so in southern Afghanistan, you see this kind of rise and fall of a particular kind of American agricultural development. And by the mid-1970s, uh, certainly under the Nixon administration, the U.S. is, is of course, less and less interested in um, creating these kind of developmental models for the third world and is more concerned about uh, drug enforcement. They're more concerned about Afghan opium entering Iran in particular, but through its uh, European markets. And so there's this kind of shift away from this, this more optimistic moment, you might say, of third world nation building and this kind of high developmental moment of the early 1960s to this more restrictive, perhaps punitive, criminalizing moments of, uh, of the 1970s under Nixon and uh, Ford. And so maybe you could just uh, run us briefly through. So that's what's happening in terms of American developments in Afghanistan. What's going on with the Soviet Union and how does their model um, relate to the American model and how is it different and, and what does it say about different visions of modernity? Yeah, so the Soviet model was was in some regards uh, different from the uh, American model. Both, of course, postulated this idea that this kind of Hegelian idea that there were sort of different stages of history that you would eventually reach, I don't know, totality or, or kind of an end of history. Uh, at, but uh, the, the Soviets' ideas and how you got there were, of course, a bit different. Uh, and they changed throughout the Cold War. But in the context of the late 1950s, uh, the basic idea that the Soviets had was that countries, in order to get to communism, had to progress through certain stages of development. You know, maybe slaveholding societies way back when, but then eventually feudalism and then uh, capitalism. And only when they had gone through these discrete stages of development, including capitalism, would they be ready to eventually make the jump to socialism and eventually communism? So for the Soviets, the real question is kind of like, is Afghanistan a feudal society or a capitalist society? And, you know, how can we make sure that it traverses these developmental stages as quickly and as efficiently um, as possible? And so in the 1950s, beyond the military training, the Soviets, you know, largely reached the conclusion that Afghanistan is probably in a, in a capitalist state of development. It maybe depends on which part of the country you're looking at. They, they struggle to make their theories fit the country much as the, the folks at MIT do. Uh, but ultimately, they come <laughs> to the conclusion that, well, um, we need to try to build a Afghan working class uh, through you know, large bread bakeries, through agricultural processing facilities uh, in Kabul. They say, well, okay, farming is, is difficult, but if we make a big state farm that kind of functions like an industrial enterprise, this will help us produce an ersatz um, Afghan working class. 
But they too kind of run into this problem of, of Afghanistan's place in the international political economy. I think one similarity that the Americans and the Soviets had was that both of their models of development presumed that states would eventually, you know, export stuff into the world economy. The only question was whether it would be the liberal capitalist one or some version of socialist exchange within the, the socialist bloc. But just as the Americans found out that, well, hey, wait a second, our major regional ally, Pakistan, is like blockading these guys and causing, you know, these apricots to rot on the border. The Soviets soon, soon discovered that, well, OK, what exactly is Afghanistan going to export to like East Germany? Uh, what is the position of Afghanistan going to be vis-a-vis Czechoslovakia, which is a much, much more industrialized country? So, like, how can we promise Afghans this dream of, you know, steel factories and um, these large industrial facilities when we already have that kind of stuff in Kharkov, in Leipzig, in Pilsen, in Prague, uh, et cetera. And so I would argue that both countries kind of face this problem of fitting Afghanistan into their idealized vision of the international political economy and division of labor by the 1970s. Ultimately, I would say, to to kind of give the short version, uh, the, the solution that the Soviets hit on is to say, well... Look, you guys actually aren't going to get the uh, steel plants and the uh, the railroads. Um, instead, we're going to build kind of natural gas extraction facilities. We'll plug you into the Central Asian electricity network that we have in the Soviet Union. And Afghanistan will be able to export natural gas into the Soviet Union to kind of clear its balance of payments uh, with us. But the bottom line, I think, is that by the 1970s, this kind of developmental moment has run its course. And, and both countries are sort of uh, left uh, shrugging their shoulders uh, when it comes to the idea of like, what is Afghanistan going to do in the world? What kind of sort of world do we want this country to fit into? And ultimately, the answers are rather discouraging. It's either war on drugs or resource extraction. And neither of those are, I think, a really uh, compelling vision for Afghans. Tim, I wonder if we could talk for a minute. I know part of your research focuses on what you've called Islamist internationalism which is a, a movement that arises sort of in the wake of the Iranian revolution and, and posits a different, sort of another alternative to the, the dominant developmental models. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of explain what it is and where it comes from. And, you know, I, I know we're, we're getting a little bit away from Afghanistan, but I think as we're talking about these models and you're doing this, this very interesting research on, a, on an alternative uh, development model. I, I'd, I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about that. And just very briefly, Tim, if you could go, uh, answer Derek's question and then go into what happens in Afghanistan in the late 70s, because I think these things are coterminous to some degree. Sure. Yeah. So I think a good place to start is to, if we pick up where where we had left off before in the 1920s with this idea of Amanullah and kind of pan-Islamism and, you know, Afghanistan as, a, as an Islamic state in some sense. That's all true. Uh, but it's important to observe that you know, certainly in the 19th century and in the 1920s as well, I would argue, you know, plenty of, of intellectuals like Iqbal in, in Pakistan, you know, would argue that, you know, oh, why, why have Muslims fallen behind uh, developmentally or economically? But I don't think that they necessarily yet posited that Islam in order to prosper or for Muslims to uh, flourish internationally, they wouldn't posit necessarily that Islam had to become a scientific ideology along the lines of Marxism-Leninism. They didn't argue that Muslims had to form organized Leninist cadre parties or centralized parties along the lines of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union or the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, 
Part of what I'm interested in in my current research is observing how, in my opinion, especially after the Iraqi revolution in 1958, many Muslim activists around the world, but especially in the Shia world, begin to think differently about what a effective kind of politics of of modernization uh, would look like. And uh, they do this by forming sort of centralized political parties, such as the Islamic Call Party in in Iraq. And they also do so by, by kind of copying in certain regards uh, communist organizational patterns and ways of thinking about the world uh, writ large. So like one of the things I'm really interested in right now and in researching is how Islamist actors in the 1960s and 1970s begin to look not only to kind of indigenous sources, you might say, such as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, but start to look at uh, movements like, say, the Chinese communists or the Algerian revolution uh, or in the 1970s, uh, the Palestinian group uh, Fatah or the Vietnamese and start to say, well, hmm, uh, these guys seem to be pretty successful in in kind of repelling European colonial influence. Uh, This whole idea, this whole Maoist idea of encircling the cities uh, before uh, taking them, uh, you know, maybe this could be applied against the Shah's regime. Uh, in Iran, or perhaps this, this could be applied against the Ba'athist dictatorship uh, in Iraq. And so I'm really interested in these ways in which uh, Muslim activists, especially in the 1960s and 1970s, before the Iranian revolution and the anti-Soviet jihad, uh, look very widely um, around the world and, and start to look to places like uh, the Congo, uh, to uh, Latin America, uh, to East Asia for different models of how Muslims can organize effectively uh, on the world stage. So to connect this more to the to the 1970s in Afghanistan, uh, this is really important because Afghanistan um, uh, will, will later become famous for kind of Islamist politics. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, had a very vibrant uh, socialist scene on the campuses of universities, um, partly through these exchanges with the Soviet Union. Um, communist literature was widely circulated in Afghanistan. Um, in contrast to neighboring Iran, there was very little censorship, so it was actually like really easy to circulate Marxist pamphlets. Um, and further, you know, Afghanistan was an overwhelmingly agrarian country. So as I highlight in my recent essay for Noema, uh, you know, Maoist models of guerrilla revolution and kind of the, the peasant rather than the factory worker or the, uh, the urban, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, decadent uh, urban intellectual as the as the revolutionary subject uh, are kind of more logical there uh, than than they might be in a country like um, I don't know uh, Turkey or uh, you know uh, any any country in Western Europe let's say um, so uh, it, you know Afghanistan has this very vibrant socialist scene this then prompts a lot of um, pious intellectuals people who have traveled and studied in countries like Egypt or Iraq to start to say well oh my gosh you, you know we're now facing this communist threat. Uh, we need to counter-organize. And so the 1960s and 1970s uh, sees a lot of uh, formation of uh, Islamist models of politics uh, to counter this perceived uh, socialist uh, creep. There's a sort of a version of the Muslim Brotherhood that's founded in Kabul University in the late 60s and early 70s. And what I'm particularly interested in my own research are how uh, many um, Shia intellectuals actually go from being interested in Maoism to interested in the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, throughout the late uh, throughout the 1970s, as China, uh, in their view, uh, kind of abandons uh, its uh, promise of world revolution. All these dynamics eventually come together in the late 1970s, as, as Danny's uh, question uh, indicates. Toward in uh, April of 1978, uh, a group of uh, Afghan army officers and members of the pro-Soviet uh, Communist Party um, kind of stage a coup against the ruling family. This was, again, the same family that had been in power since the 1930s. They uh, 
you know, surround the president, uh, kill him, uh, execute his family. And they announced that Afghanistan has become a democratic republic. Our relationship with all the countries, including Soviet Union, and all our neighbors and throughout the world will be based and depend on the amount of their support to our revolutionary government in political, economical field. They do this with... Not an Islamic republic, it's a democratic Correct. republic. Correct, this is a group of, of sort of pro-Soviet, Pashtun... So like North Korea, yeah. yeah. Like the Democratic People's Republic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this is, you know, comparable to, to like Vietnam during the same period or perhaps uh, Ethiopia, which was also a, had a had a sort of pro-Soviet Marxist regime uh, during that period. But yeah, they want a socialist uh, Afghanistan. They are also very into the Pashtun nationalism piece um, as well. And they proceed to start jailing and killing a lot of people, including uh, much of the Islamist opposition in the country. They do all this without kind of the green light from the Soviet Union. Um, and in fact, their behavior starts to concern uh, the Soviets very much. Uh, the Soviets are worried that these Afghans are implementing socialist land reforms too quickly. Uh, they're worried that they're not kind of dividing and conquering the uh, among the middle class and the upper class uh, as they would uh, recommend necessarily. Um, and after these Afghan communists begin uh, killing and murdering one another um, in the autumn of uh, 1979, uh, the uh, gerontocratic uh, leadership of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, almost as old as uh, Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi, but uh, I think actually even... Uh, yeah, they were younger. Yeah, they were like yeah, a decade were, younger. Yeah, sorry, yeah, they were, yeah, yeah, younger. Yeah, younger. They were yeah. pretty young, yeah, sorry, yeah, relatively yeah. speaking. They were, they were whippersnappers yeah, yeah. compared to our ruling elite. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, the, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the, the sort of uh, Dianne Feinsteins of, um, of the uh, Soviet Union proceed to say, well, hey, we can't really trust these Afghan... Um, communists, and they then proceed to, um, you know, uh, uh, dome them uh, in uh, December 1979 and replace them with uh, other Afghan communists who had been in exile in, um, in Eastern Europe. So this is a bit different from Vietnam, you might say, where the United States had kind of supported the French first and then ended up in this anti-colonial struggle. This is like the Soviet Union getting kind of uh, forced into uh, backing this democratic people's republic and then finding out that these communists are not only incompetent, but also fratricidal, and then having to kill like half of them to, to replace the regime with the other half. So in 79, of course, the uh, Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. Uh, and we'll talk about that uh, more on a future episode. But Tim, as we wrap up here, could you maybe just give the state of play in terms of the United States in Afghanistan in 79? Because my understanding is that once the Soviets invade, the United States takes a step back and, of course, will return with an oomph 22 years later in 2001. But maybe we could end on uh, the U.S. and uh, late 70s Afghanistan, and particularly how it reacts to this coup that is undertaken by these uh, army officers, these military officers. Yeah, you know, people people have been have been doing really wonderful research on this on the subject, but I think the, the broad context you'd have to put it in is sort of post-Vietnam and this this uh, sense that the Soviet Union is uh, going on some kind of offensive uh, in the third world. You know, the, the summer of 75 had seen not only the collapse of uh, Saigon, but also the uh, decolonization of Angola. There were revolutions and various conflicts in, in the Horn of Africa uh, around the same time. Uh, so from the perspective of the Ford and, well, the Ford, but in this context, the Carter administration, these events in Afghanistan, and especially from uh, folks like uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, uh, were very concerned that this was part of some kind of Soviet offensive or some attempt to exploit 
the detente policy that the uh, Nixon and Ford administrations had worked so hard to reach with the Soviet Union. The United States made some efforts to engage cautiously with a communist regime that emerged after 78 and, and 79. And I think there's there's uh, interesting questions as to you know whether there could have been a, a different way forward. But uh, certainly by the summer of 1979, the United States uh, you know becomes very concerned with Soviet influence in this part of the world. Its major allies, such as Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, are extremely concerned uh, about these events and, and uh, under no circumstances want to see a Marxist regime in this part of uh, Central Asia, particularly as the Shah's regime in neighboring Iran is beginning to uh, collapse. And over the course of the summer of 1979, the Carter administration will begin to make efforts to, to arm the so-called Mujahideen or, or kind of fighters or warriors against the Afghan government. So to kind of bring everything together, by the late 1970s, we have this interesting moment where these two ideological factions in Afghan politics, kind of pro-Soviet communists and Afghan Islamists, in this context, especially Sunni Islamists, um, these guys have been fighting each other on the campuses of universities, you know, throughout the 60s and early 70s. But now in the context of the late 1970s, the one group of guys are in charge in Kabul they have the Soviet military, you know, the world's largest land army uh, in their country uh, backing them. And meanwhile, their opponents, these Afghan Islamists, these guys didn't necessarily have a credible theory of how you fight a armed struggle against a regime of this kind. They had been always thinking about like, well, we're going to Islamize society. We're not so sure about elections. You know, somehow it's going to happen one way or another. They didn't necessarily have a theory of armed combat for how to do this. But this geopolitical conjuncture will put a lot of these Afghan Islamist groups into a partnership with long-reaching consequences, namely with the United States, with Pakistan, and, and with Saudi Arabia. And in the course of the 1980s, as we'll get to in a, in a later conversation, this will you know, be one of the major theaters of the Cold War in the 1980s. Tim, thanks so much. And everyone, uh, stay tuned for our next episode on uh, the history of Afghanistan, where we'll go from the uh, Soviet invasion until 2021 and where we are today. Uh, Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim.